Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos. Now, wouldn't this be a good time for me to say something like, if you're using the Bibles under the chairs in front of you, turn to page 764. But we can't do that these days because the Bibles are uh, packed away to minimize contact back and forth. Uh, By the way, if you come to Todd after church today and tell him you need a Bible, Todd will come to me and I'll give him a Bible from my office and then he will give you a Bible today. So we'll get that sorted out in a real hurry. Um, Since I can't tell you what page to look on, that leaves you with three ways to find Amos in your Bible. You could do what I do, which is flip to the general vicinity of the minor prophets and then act like you're just really casually and no rush to get there, even though you know uh, exactly where you're going. You could turn to the table of contents in the front of your Bible and use it for what it was designed to do. Or, if you have a boy or girl from Awana sitting in your section today, this is really their time to shine because they know the books of the Old Testament by heart from a song. So if they started after Lamentations, they could sing Ezekiel and Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, and then you'd be there. So, so if you find Ezekiel or Daniel or Hosea or Joel, just turn right until you find Amos. So now that we've found Amos, you may be asking, as many of you have already asked me earlier this week, Why? Amos, what have we done to you, Pastor Andrew? <laughs> Who hurt you? Uh, let me show you it's not, it's not because of that. Um, so allow me to just sort of present in a nutshell why I'm preaching through Amos and why I think it would be worth the effort uh, to listen. So the first part, in very broad general terms, when God speaks in his word, he often speaks in the language of judgment. Not always, but often. A great deal of the Bible is spoken in judgment. And if we are going to faithfully listen to what he has said to us, then there is a need to practice listening to what he has said in the language of judgment. It's obviously not easy or pleasant or comfortable, and it won't be particularly easy to hear this morning. Uh, There might have been a time maybe a week ago where I would have said those words with some nursing some inner pride that, oh, I'll just, I'll make it easy anyway. You know, we'll, we'll say it's going to be really hard and then I'll preach so well it won't be hard. Well, I tell you this morning, I assure you, I no longer nurse that pride. Um, I probably can't make this particularly easy or comfortable, and it should not be. If we only listen to the passages that are easy or comfortable, then we essentially domesticate the version of God that we hear from. We censor him and muzzle him. And we decide in advance what sort of things we are willing to hear. And the result is quite frightening because we end up with a God who is more our pet than our king. If we're not careful to listen to all that God has said, particularly when he speaks in judgment, then our understanding of this God who has created us and revealed himself to us, our understanding of him becomes too small and it becomes too safe. Imagine, if you will, the difference between encountering a lion in a zoo, in a pen, and stumbling upon a lion in the wild. A lion in the zoo is interesting. You can observe a lion in the zoo. You can make some observations about it. A lion in the wild, you run. Uh, A lion in the zoo arouses your interest. A lion face-to-face 
changes your life. When we hear from God's word, our lives should be changed. It's not always time to hear God speak in judgment, but sometimes it is time. And sometimes we must. And if we aren't open to all that God has said, then the costly grace of the gospel erodes with time and becomes the cheap grace of a fairy tale. And the small, safe God of a fairy tale cannot save us from the reality that we live in. We need to hear God speak in the language of judgment. Otherwise, our understanding of God becomes smaller than what he has said about himself. God doesn't waste his words. A great deal of the word comes to us in the language of judgment, and that means we need to hear it, and that means God uses it. Uh, that's why today's sermon's title has, uh, has, has today's sermon has the title "Sound Judgment." That's not referring to our judgment. That's referring to God's judgment, which is sound. It's sound because God is God, and He sees all things clearly and truly. His judgment is not clouded or partial, but piercing and true. It's also sound because it is healthy and productive and useful. It's sound in the sense that it creates the result that it was intended for. Like the proper treatment or medicine prescribed by a doctor, God's judgment is sound because it is necessary and effective. So there's one reason we need to hear from Amos, that we sometimes need to hear from God's word when he speaks in judgment. And closely wrapped into that, there's a second reason. When we read the prophets, we are confronted by what we might call a holy discontent with the way things are. Holy discontent, a righteous refusal to pronounce a blessing on the status quo. Listen to the way one author expresses this idea. They, the prophets, they look at what they see and can't stand it. The days of our lives are too empty, they say. The passion of our hearts too tepid, the focus of our intentions too scattered, and they demand a reckoning. The prophets want all of God's people to be fully devoted to him. And when you read them, you're confronted by the stark reality of sin and the vast gap that exists between the way things are and the way things ought to be. And this is important. It's really important in our generation because we live in an age of causes. There are so many causes out there clamoring for our attention. We can hear the world getting increasingly upset about things. We live in a world where there's genuine injustice, where there are hungry people, desperate people, people without a voice who are confused and angry. And it's not that everything is broken, but... A lot of things are broken. And this is important because as generations are raised up in the church, if they grow up mostly hearing about the grace and the blessing of God, but they have a meager understanding of the judgment of God, if the gospel they have become accustomed to resembles a fairy tale, then they, and then they go out and they discover for themselves that there is real evil in the world and plenty of it. And there are voices in the world that are angry about it and want to do something about it. Well, then the question becomes, why doesn't this God I've heard about in church care about what's wrong in the world? Why don't his people seem to care about what's wrong out there in the world? And of course, the great tragedy is that even a passing glance at what God has spoken 
through prophets, we learn in a real hurry that God cares very much about what's going on out there in the world. Not only does he care about what's going on out there, but he cares about what's going on in here in the hearts of his people as well. So we need to hear from the prophets in order to cultivate a holy discontent with the way things are. We need to be reminded that it is not God's intention that things stay the way they are right now. And finally, why Amos in particular? Well, it goes without saying that words of judgment that rattle our complacency and shake our comfort are never easy to hear. Never. We're hardwired against hearing those things. And the people of Israel to whom the Lord sent Amos actually share in common many of the obstacles to hearing a word of judgment from God that we have today. And we'll, we'll get into more of those, those particular obstacles next week. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that we should consider that we are guilty of all the sins of which Israel is guilty of, that Amos accuses them of. We are not. Our situation is not the same. But the words that God used to confront Israel remain with us to challenge us today. So I've made my pitch. Uh, Hopefully it's enough to convince you to uh, stick with me and give it a chance. Uh, Will you bow with me and pray before we open up the text? Glorious Father, we thank you for your word as we always do. And I pray that you prepare our hearts to hear it this morning, to really hear it. And uh, it is a challenging word, and I am, not, uh, I am not on my own worthy of holding it in or speaking it out. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help me and that you will help all of us to hear what you have said and that you will apply it to us and accomplish your will in our midst as we listen to your voice. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Amos, we'll start at the beginning of chapter 1. I hear it's a good place to start. and We'll just read the first two verses. The words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. This helpful introduction helps us place these words in history. Uh, Based on the dates for Isaiah in the south and Jeroboam in the north, we know that Amos would have been preaching right around the year 750 BC, give or take 10 years. This means that he was speaking a message of judgment primarily aimed at the northern kingdom of Israel very close to the time when that kingdom would be Uh, conquered and scattered. So I'm not going to spend long on this, but we need to review some basic facts of Israel's timeline. The greatest king, the greatest human king that ever sat on the throne in Jerusalem, reigning over the 12 tribes of Israel, was 
David. I sure hope someone said David. Yeah. And the kingdom of Israel reached a golden age under David's son, who was Solomon. And following the death of Solomon, the kingdom was split, divided in two. In the south, there was the kingdom of Judah, made up of two of the twelve tribes of Israel. In the north, there was the kingdom of Israel, consisting of the other ten tribes. The southern kingdom, while smaller, had some advantages. The south had Jerusalem, the place where the Lord had put his name and where the temple was. The south also had the sons of David, the kingly descendants in the line of David. And God had set Jerusalem as the place of worship, and God had promised there would one day be a king in the line of David who would rule forever. The northern kingdom of Israel refused to acknowledge David's descendants as king, and they set up new places of worship outside of God's choice, Jerusalem. So even though both, king, both kingdoms were very prone to drifting into sin and error, things tended to be worse in the north because essentially all of the worship of the Lord in the north was tainted by the fact that they were willfully rejecting God's instructions. So here's what we need to know about Amos and his message. Amos was a shepherd, or maybe one step higher, maybe like a, like a rancher kind of. Amos was from Tekoa, which means he was from the southern tribe of Judah. And Amos was sent by the Lord to proclaim a message of judgment to the kingdom of Israel in the north. And this message was coming in the very last generation of the kingdom. They did not know it at the time. Things seemed like they were on the upswing at the time, but their time was up. We're going to go into more detail about the social conditions in Israel next week. We'll save that for next week. For now, that's, that's kind of all we need to know. It's enough to know that Amos has been sent from the south to confront Israel in the north. Now take a look at verse 2. What an introduction this is to what's going to come later in the book. The Lord roars from Zion. His voice begins in Jerusalem, but it spreads out everywhere. The pastures of the shepherds down in the valleys, where Amos is from, they feel it. And all the way up to the top of Mount Carmel, withers. Mount Carmel was a holy site in northern Israel. The same word is going to reach everywhere. There will be nowhere to hide, and there will be no one who is exempt. This is the lion in the wild. Yeah? This is not God under a microscope for our opinion and our approval. This is the Lord, the living God, the great I am, and he is speaking in judgment over the earth. The fact that Mount Carmel is in Israel and it's mentioned by name should be a little bit of a warning to Amos' listeners in Israel. The warning is, do not assume that what I am about to say to you does not apply to you. Listen closely. There's actually a little hint at a rhetorical trap that Amos is going to spring on his listeners. So starting in verse 3, we are going to hear an entire sequence of judgments on all of the neighboring nations that surround Israel. All their neighbors are going to come under judgment. And if you know even a tiny bit about Israel's history in the land, they had run-ins and feuds and rivalries with all of these other nations. So Amos is going to start by saying what's wrong with all the people Israel doesn't like. And you can imagine how Israel might respond to that. It's not always a bad thing to hear your rivals 
get read the riot act. So let's read from verse 3 in chapter 1 all the way down to verse 3 in chapter 2. If you're following along as I read, be warned, I will be skipping some portions in order to keep things moving. But every time I skip ahead, I'll always skip to the start of a new section, and every single section begins with the words, thus says the Lord. So it shouldn't be too hard to follow along. And as we read this series of judgments on six nations, six of Israel's neighbors, pay attention to the kinds of things that get repeated. And pay attention to the crimes for which God holds them accountable. What is God pronouncing judgment on? What have they done that is worthy of his judgment? And also just try to imagine how the Israelites might feel as they listen to all their rivals get, get a strip torn off them like this. So chapter 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall destroy, it shall devour her strongholds. Verse 9. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom. And did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because he pursued his brother with a sword, and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kirioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Let's start by observing the category of transgressions that God is judging these nations for. I'm not going to dwell very long on these things because they are not very pleasant. In verse 3, God judges Damascus, the capital of Syria, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. The image is a stand-in for exceptionally cruel treatment of an area that's been subdued through force. They didn't just fight and win a battle. They decimated the people. 
They treated them like something less than people, to be turned over for profit. If you look down to verse 13, to the the sin of the Ammonites, we see that this also happened to Gilead, maybe at the same time. This is the one that mentions uh, pregnant women. We see that this was committed against Gilead, and the, the language is horrific in verse 13, and I hope it's hyperbole. I hope it is. I hope it's a metaphor. But it's still a metaphor that stands for something. It's there to say that vulnerable human beings have been treated as collateral damage so that others might profit. What's the reason for this? The end of verse 3, so that they might enlarge their border. Loose translation, we wanted more stuff, better stuff, more comfortable stuff, cheaper stuff. And so at the expense of human lives, we took it. Right, the second and third oracles on uh, the Philistines, that's Gaza and Tyre, they're essentially the same thing. They are both charged with carrying off an entire people, everyone, and selling them in, dis, into slavery to Edom. In the case of Tyre, it's somehow even worse when you realize that Tyre's actions have broken a kind of covenant. They have turned in their brothers and sold them off. And by the time we get to Edom, which is right in the middle, at verse 11, we kind of expect Edom's participation in all, buying all these slaves might be Edom's sin, but no, they're singled out for something else even. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually. Edom doesn't just get angry. Edom holds a grudge. Edom doesn't forget. Edom allows his anger to give him permission to justify actions that would be otherwise unthinkable. And we don't have to look very far to see what kind, how that behavior sort of boomerangs back on you. Because if you look at, uh, at the judgment on Moab, one of Edom's rivals, Moab got a hold of the body of one of Edom's kings, either through battle or desecrating a grave, we don't know. But they publicly burned that king's body until there was nothing left, just for spite. What category can we put these offenses under that Israel's neighbors are being judged for? I want to suggest war crimes, outrageous crimes against human dignity, the kind of actions that no one would approve of, that everyone would see is wrong. And so I want to take note of two things here. First, the Lord does not hold these foreign nations accountable for keeping his specific covenant laws we'll see very soon that there's a higher standard that falls on Judah and Israel because they're his people and he's revealed his ways to them. The Lord judges these nations not for, for infractions of his specific laws but for crimes against human dignity that there could be no reasonable defense for. But more importantly, it is the Lord who passes judgment on all of the nations. This is an important thing for us to take note of. Right? These nations had their own gods, fake gods, idols that they worshipped. They had their own religious beliefs. That they, had, they had their own moral system. They had their own scorecard for life. But God does not consult these other gods when he judges them. The Lord is God over all, and it's the God of Israel who ultimately stands in judgment over the whole world. And this matters to us today. It matters to us because we need to know that God sees and hears and cares about the evil and injustice in our world. 
for three transgressions and for four. For three transgressions and for four. We heard that over and over. Reminds us that God sees. God often delays his judgment out of mercy, giving time for repentance, but he does not forget. And the punishment will not be revoked. Justice will be done. And that changes our mindset when we fight against evil and injustice. It does not stop the fight. Not for a minute. It doesn't stop striving for justice. But it means that we think differently about the people and the systems that we struggle against. Because it will be God's standard that judges them in the end. The cause of righteousness is not slipping. It's not losing. It's only a matter of time before God acts. But it also reminds us that there is real evil out there. And this is the point that Amos is driving towards, and he'll get to. There's evil out there, and there's evil here at home as well. The great J.I. Packer, who passed away this last week, writes this. Why do men shy away of the thought of God as a judge? Why do they feel the thought to be unworthy of him? Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good an admirable being, the final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. For some reason, we hate to think of God as a judge. But if you ask me what makes me more uncomfortable, the idea that God judges the world or, or the thought of a God who does not, I would much rather believe in the judge. It's possible the reason we dislike hearing about God as a judge doesn't have anything to do with what God's judgments say about God, but it has more to do with what his judgments say about us. And that just about brings us to the big swerve in Amos' message. In a surprising twist, the southern kingdom of Judah is included at the end of this series of oracles that seems like it's just going to be about the foreign nations. This is chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. But here's the difference. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Judah is in a covenant relationship with God, and so Judah is held to a different standard. But other than that, it feels a lot like the prophets on the other nations, the, the, the judgment on the other nations. So you can see how this trap is going to work on Amos' hearers, right? right? First, Israel hears about tidings of doom and gloom coming down on Syria, and then it's that old enemy, the Philistines, who get, get what's coming to them. And then Tyre, and Edom, and Ammon, and Moab. And then, surprisingly, even Judah. Even God's people in the south are included in this list. And the people of Israel might be thinking, we don't know for sure, they might be thinking how finally those boasters down in Judah, those goody two-shoes always talking about the temple, and King David, they're finally getting what they deserve. But perhaps, at the mention of the failure to keep God's statutes, 
perhaps there is a slight doubt deep down in the, in the minds of the Israelites, but whatever their reaction is, they don't have very long to process it because of what just comes pouring down on them, starting in chapter, chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars and who were as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was also I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine. And commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day declares the Lord. Some of you are really observant listeners, and you may have picked up on the fact that the Lord's statement of judgment on Israel is just a little bit longer and more intense and more personal than his statement of judgment has been on the other nations so far. And the sobering fact is this. This is not the end of it. This goes on for another six chapters. It doesn't let up. And so I'm going to move fairly quickly through chapter 2 because there will be no shortage of similar material for us to unpack next week. There's a whole assortment of sins listed in verses 6 and 7 and 8. And if you look back up to verse 4, where Judah is accused of rejecting God's law, that's almost, that's the principle. The principle is God's people have rejected his law. And then 6, 7, and 8, we see the nitty-gritty details. Here's what it looks like when God's people reject his law. Now, remember what the other nations were guilty of? All those crimes of badly mistreating people, but other people, right? Like, our tribe is here, and we're only going to treat the other people out there badly, and that's what God judges them for. Well, look at verses 6 and 7. God's own nation, Israel, is found guilty of mistreating not other people, but their own people, injustice towards their own poor and vulnerable, are some of the major sins that we see come up again and again in the rest of the book. And the other major sin is idolatry, or in other words, unfaithful and insincere worship of God. The people were guilty of spiritually cheating on the Lord with fake gods and idols in the world around them, and or worshiping on the Lord in ways that were transparently insincere like token attendance at church, and then running off without shame to every sin you can imagine during the week. 
to give a, a modern equivalent. So these two sins go together. When, when God's people forsake his word, they end up treating people like less than people. And when God's people are treating people like less than people, vice versa is true. They have probably departed from his word. That bit about father and son with the same girl in verse 7 is not only icky and perverse, it was probably very likely participation in a cult, worshipping a fertility god like Baal, hoping that you would get better crops as a result of doing that. And to mention a father and son doing it together means that things have gotten so bad that no one even bats an eye at it anymore. No, it's, you don't hide it from your son. You take him with you and teach him that this is what we do. That's how far things have slipped in Israel. Their worship of God is just in name only. And in verse 8 would be funny if it wasn't so sad. Verse 8 is ridiculous. There are people engaging in worship around the altar while they are simultaneously breaking specific laws that the God they are worshiping has given them. God gave specific laws to protect the poor, saying that you could not take the clothing of a poor man and keep it as collateral for a loan overnight. You have to give it back to him so he has it at night. And here you have people not only taking advantage of the poor and refusing to return their stuff, but they actually take the stuff of the poor people and they use it as decor in their area of worship. God says in verse 7, My holy name is profaned. This is personal to God because all these things that are being done in 6 and 7 and 8, God gave specific instructions against them. Specific instructions against these things. It's like telling your child not to do something and not only do they not do the thing or telling your child to do something and not only do they not do it, but they do the exact opposite on purpose, looking you in the eye when they do it. Verses 9 to 11, by contrast, are a reminder of some of the things that God has done. God says, don't you remember how you got here? It was me. I was the one who cleared your enemies out of the land and gave it to you. I was the one who took you when you were slaves in Egypt and I redeemed you and I guided you through the wilderness. Everything you have comes from me. And not only that, but verse 11, I raised up some of your, prof- some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. In other words, I did my part. I kept my part of the covenant And I even gave you specific reminders to help you do your part. Can you hear the personal anguish and disbelief in God's voice when he says, Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? And then verse 12 is kind of the final slap in the face. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you told the prophets not to prophesy. God graciously provides good examples to help the people follow what's right, And instead, they try to lower the bar. This would be like, like if you know that person who just seems to be really holy, and every time that guy's around, you feel a little convicted and a little uncomfortable because there's a higher standard that you're being called towards. And then that guy stumbles and falls and ruins his reputation. And inside, you're thinking, whew, at least I don't have to put up with that anymore. At least we kind of lowered the bar. We, we got rid of that good example. And finally, verses 12 to 16 emphasize just how unavoidable the punishment is going to be. 
Remember, in each of these cases, there's those words, for three transgressions and for four. I will not revoke the punishment. This is the flip side of talking big about how your God is the strongest God and he's going to punish all the other people for all the things that they do wrong. Okay, the flip side is that when God is punishing your own sin, there is no place to escape. You think you're fast? You won't escape God. You think you're strong? Not strong enough to resist him. You think you're brave? Not when God comes in judgment. Whatever strength you have came from him and it's powerless to resist him. To this day, some of God's people persist in sin because they mistakenly feel safe in doing so. They mistakenly feel safe in persisting in sin. Because God is slow to act doesn't mean he will not act. Because we have security systems around us, we feel like we have a safety net. We can afford to take some risks. Right? But read 12 to 16 again. I think your bank account is healthy enough to weather any storm. Not if it's God who's lined up against you. Can you hunt and live off the land and you got a cabin? You can just retreat out there and you'll be fine? Not if it's God who's coming to find you. You're really smart? Not next to God. You have a great network of friends? Great job security? Excellent health? All those things offer protection against something, but not protection against God. For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And this spoken to God's own people who have persisted in their rejection of his ways. The Lord roars from Zion and the top of Carmel withers. The people who bear his name are not exempt from judgment. Far from it, they're held to a higher standard. There's an old story. I have no way of checking if it's true or not, but it's it's powerful enough to tell anyway. His father and his daughter walking through a field and out in the distance they can see that there is a fire. They can see the smoke. But by the time they realize that the fire was out of control, they know that the wind is against them and they will not outrun the fire. So the father knew there was only one way to escape. He quickly begins his own fire right there in the middle of the grass to burn a large patch off. And when the large fire comes near, they stood on the section that they had already burnt. And the girl was terrified by the raging flames, but her father assured her, the flames can't reach us. We are standing where the fire has already been. If you have trusted God's Son, Jesus Christ, as your Savior, you are where the wrath of God has already been. God's wrath toward your sin has not been canceled. The punishment has not been revoked, but it has already burnt. Jesus taking your place, facing God's wrath and satisfying his judgment. The only safe place to stand when the fire of God's wrath comes is where God's wrath has already burnt. There is no sin that doesn't not, does not result in God's punishment. As his people, do we live like we understand that? We're going to conclude our time today by considering the first two verses of chapter 3. 
Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Two weeks ago, Pastor Dan was preaching from Psalm 147. And he drew our attention to many of the reasons we have to praise the Lord. And one special reason comes at the end of that psalm. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. That's a privilege that comes from belonging to God's people. And it comes with a responsibility. Those who have been saved by God, redeemed by God, called by his name and given his word are then expected to live according to his word. Or in the words of Christ our Lord, to whom much is given, much will be required. And for this reason, the judgment of God will begin at the house of the Lord. You only have I known, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. The thing about verse 2 is that it doesn't just stress Israel's covenant responsibilities. In fact, it primarily stresses God's covenant responsibilities. God is obligated, because of his covenant with Israel, to punish his people and to hold them accountable, to refine them and to not leave them the way they are. God's plan to bring salvation and blessing to the rest of the world is caught up in his purposes of judging Israel. Because God is holy, and they are his, and they also must be holy. God's plan is that his glory and his salvation will reach the world through his refined people. And in order for that to happen, it's necessary that he judge and refine his people. If you are under the blood of Jesus, then you are safe from God's wrath, but you also fall under the discipline that God as a father must bring his children through. There's no option of coming into God's grace and continuing to walk willfully in your sins. Do you see that? As God's new covenant people, we must expect God's work of judgment in our lives and God's work of sanctification in our lives. Because what's at stake is the salvation of the rest of the world around us. God can't let you wallow in your sin without consequence. He can't do it because his holy character won't allow it. And he can't do it because he has planned on reaching the world through a people bought and purified for his name's sake. As David wrote, and as we heard from earlier in Psalm 51 today, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. God brings us to conviction and repentance and purification so that we might be a blessing to the people around us. And at this point, I just want to come back full circle to a topic that we kind of introduced in the introduction. How should the church respond to all of the finger-pointing and guilt-inducing that goes on in our culture of virtue signaling? I want to acknowledge two common mistakes And then hopefully point out that our sermon this morning has provided a third and better way. First of all, our world is full of anger and blame because it is legitimately full of evil. 
The God of the Bible is largely in agreement with those in our world who are outraged over injustice. The key difference is that only God is qualified to judge. And as we saw in God's judgment on the nations, everyone will one day be judged according to God's standards, not their own. So one error that the church makes, I'm not saying our church, I'm saying the church as a whole, is to hear the accusations of the world and essentially just give in to its demands. Some Christians will be pricked in their consciences. They will acknowledge the problem because it's a real problem, and then they'll submit to whatever the world asks of them. And this usually happens because they have gotten used to a gospel of cheap grace, and they're repenting of a fairy tale version of Christianity. Unfortunately, instead of replacing it with a, a solid grasp of God's righteous judgment, they, they capitulate, give in to the judgment of the world around them. The other error is to properly reject the idea that the world is a qualified authority on judgment, but to incorrectly deny that there could be any guilt or wrongdoing on the part of God's people. 1 John 1.1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so when the world points its finger at the church and says guilty, far be it from us to deny it, our response should be yes, guilty, but you have no idea how guilty. It's not you Who's going to stand as judge over me? But God in heaven will judge us both. And there is only one safe place from the fire. And his name is Jesus. And so by remembering the judgment of God, we can be conformed to the higher standard of God's holy love. We're not under a lesser standard of judgment, but a higher and grander one when we are God's people. God's plan to bless the world is to have a church full of sinners so transformed by his grace that others would see his glory and be drawn to Christ. The world's best hope is a church that has been judged and disciplined and sanctified. God's judgment on his people serves a beautiful purpose. There are times when it's appropriate to examine our lives in the light of God's judgment towards us. There are times that our joy and salvation in Jesus Christ must be tempered by a sadness at the sin that still remains. Because if we're still here, it's because God has not finished with us yet. Hopefully we can admit that much, that there is work yet to do. There are times when it's appropriate to come before the Lord in self-examination and ask him, Plead with him to reveal to us what must change, what he must judge, what we must put to death and crucify. It might be an appropriate response to today's sermon to set aside a time this week to come before God in prayer and ask him to search you, to search your heart and reveal to you what he desires to change. 
so that others see more of his son in your life? So that you have more joy of his salvation in your life? And I would encourage you to do this with some scripture open before you. Maybe a book like 1 John. Maybe Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Maybe the book of James, if you're bold. But strange as it may seem, in the end it is for the good of God's people to hear the voice of the Lord speak in judgment. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we are brought under conviction by your word to us, and we confess that we are not yet where you are getting us to. We also give great thanks, inexpressible thanks, for the grace and mercy that you have shown us through Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us from the punishment for our sins and brought us into your kingdom. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to search us, to reveal to us the sins that linger and the ways that we can be brought more into conformity to your word. Teach us, Jesus, through your word and your spirit, where we are not yet obeying your commands. Because we know that that is where the most joy is. When we are following you and obeying your commands, loving our God and loving our neighbors. There may be some here who have been listening today who have thought that they were safe in Christ, but who realized they had actually been trusting all along in some kind of hope that you might consider them righteous on their own that your judgment might just disappear. There may be some here who have claimed Jesus as their Savior without completely understanding the depth of their guilt before you. And I pray that today you would grant them the joy of knowing, absolutely knowing, that their sin is what it is and that they can be hidden in safety in Jesus Christ who has paid for that sin in full, in full. When we hear you speak in judgment, we appreciate in newer and deeper ways what Jesus has faced on our behalf, what he has purchased on our behalf. And we give you praise once again for saving us, and we repent of anything that is not worthy of the life and the calling that Jesus offers to us. And Father, we pray for the world around us, We pray for your work in convicting them and in revealing your salvation to them, in reaching them with the good news through us, through your people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. May the peace of God be yours through Jesus Christ and in the life of the Spirit. God bless.